We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ, and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. long for security and significance. We seek it out in all sorts of places. And as I, as I thought about this idea of security and significance and, and how we pursue it often, it reminded me of uh, the, that famous lyric from the Cheers song. So I know this was a little bit before my time. Some, some of you who are my age or younger might not know what I'm talking about, but maybe you'll recognize the words. Uh, it said, sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name and they're always glad that you came, right? We, we long to be recognized. We long to be known. We long to feel secure and significant. And so we pursue this in all sorts of ways in life, right? We, we build financial portfolios uh, that are diversified and, and that we think are solid because we, we think in them we can have security for our future. We build companies and products with our names on them, and we're proud of them because it's been, it's been hard work building it, and, and, and we want recognition for it. We want our name to be known. We, we have this longing in us for a, a, a place to call home, a place to belong. And it's kind of this itching, gnawing feeling that we have that, that we pursue this, this, this kind of home, this kind of this concept of significance and security our whole lives in different ways. In our whole lives, we have this, this itching, gnawing part of us that says, you know what, maybe I'm not home yet. Maybe I'm, I'm not actually secure. Maybe... I've misplaced where I can find significance in life. And yet we still pursue it. We pursue it in, in the workplace. We pursue it in our relationships. We pursue it in our sexuality. We pursue it in our finances. We pursue security and significance in all sorts of areas of life, thinking that we can find security and significance in creation rather than the creator. And this has been humanity's problem from the beginning. As we've looked at the book of Genesis, and particularly chapters 3 through 11, we've been studying how sin entered into the world and how it fractured everything, how it broke what God had originally made as good, how things were, were awry and, and, and that and the humanity was left distraught because we were ashamed and in our sin and in need of a redeemer. We looked uh, over the last couple of weeks at Genesis chapters uh, uh, 6 through 10 and, and how in the flood account we see humanity at their worst and God at his best. We see the just and gracious God uh, pouring out judgment on humanity that has evilly and rebelliously acted against him and his good plans for them, and yet then showing mercy and grace to Noah and his family and sparing them even though that they didn't deserve it. And then when we talked about this idea of a do-over that humanity had in the last couple of chapters of Genesis that we studied, and what we noticed was that Noah and his sons when God gave them this fresh start, when God gave them a new creation to live on, he'd done away with the sin that was on it before. We noticed that humanity still had the same problem. That humanity, when given another shot at things, did the same thing yet again. And we saw how Noah even looked for security and significance in the creation rather than his creator, right? As he rebelled against God and as his sons rebelled against God. And as we come to Genesis chapter 11, as we conclude our time in the book of Genesis for the time being, uh, later on, you know, maybe a couple years down the road, we'll come back and we'll study the life of Abraham and, and those who came after him. But 
But for now, we're, we're concluding our study of Genesis at chapter 11 as we've looked at what God has done in these first chapters of the Bible because the God gave them to us, and they were the first ones that are in the book, and so they must mean something for us. If they're the first pages of the book God wanted you to read, then it's key that we understand them, right? And so today, as we study Genesis chapter 11, I want you to have this concept of security and significance in your mind as we look at what humanity does yet again in rebelling against God. And I hope that we can see that we can find true and lasting satisfaction, security, significance in our creator rather than in the creation. So I hope you'll turn to Genesis chapter 11 with me, and as you do, uh, remember that we've been studying uh, Noah and his sons, and, and, and the story is picking up there, and there's been this genealogy that, that Moses has laid out in chapter 10, and what happened in that genealogy is that Moses gives this kind of summary account of the origins of the peoples that were known to him around him. And so he's showing the people of Israel where the people groups that they would have been aware of in the ancient world came from. He's showing them their origin stories. And, and he does this through a genealogy. And, and we noted that genealogies are important in Scripture because they're, they're making points to us. They're not just put there for no reason. And so while, while we don't have time to jump into the full extent of Genesis chapter 10 and cover every verse of it, I, I do want you to not skip over it as you read because Genesis chapter 11 is tied to Genesis chapter 10. And we're tempted to think that because Genesis chapter 11 comes after chapter 10 that it must be that it's chronologically after what has just happened. But I think what you'll notice is that in Genesis chapter 10, you see the peoples of the earth being dispersed and languages and cultures coming about. And then in Genesis chapter 11, Moses shows us how that happened and why it happened. And so as we study Genesis chapter 11, keep that in mind and keep these concepts of security and significance in mind. And if you're curious about how Genesis chapter 11 relates to Genesis chapter 10, I think there's a, a verse in Genesis chapter 10 about this guy named Peleg and his lifetime where it says, Moses says, for in his days the earth was divided. And so I think what we're reading in Genesis chapter 11 uh, likely occurred around that time if you're going through Genesis chapter 10 and looking for uh, when this would have taken place. But Genesis chapter 11, I want you to see three things today, and we'll make some application points as we walk through those three things. Let's read it, and then we'll pray. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all this one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Would you pray with me? God, we ask that you would give us understanding of your words. You would help us to see how it lands in our hearts and lives and how it shapes us and transforms us and, and calls us to pursue you to turn from finding security and significance in other places and to find them in you. God, we pray that you would help us to turn to you, to trust in you even now as we study your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, the first thing I want you to see here in Genesis chapter 11 is that yet again, humanity unites in rebellion against God's good plans. And so in these first four verses, this is what we see happening, that humanity comes together and they unite in rebellion against God's good plan. And so you'll notice as we read the passage that it says that they migrated from the east or they were in the eastern part of the world. And in the book of Genesis, what we notice about being in the east or heading towards the east is that to be in the east or head towards the east was to head away from God and his presence. And we notice that they settled in this land called Shinar, which is another way in the Old Testament of referring to the land of Babylon. And so we know about Babylon in in the Bible, right? Babylon is is one of Israel's greatest enemies throughout Scripture. And, And even in the book of Revelation, when we get to the New Testament... We see Babylon talked about as, as an image of the enemies of God. And so Babylon and the east, the land of Shinar, this was an area in which there, it was known for, in the ancient Near East, rebellion against the God of Israel, rebellion against the God of creation. And so uh, Moses is, is subtly pointing these things out to us as he begins to tell us what happened at the Tower of Babel. Uh, and then we see that the people use resources from around them to build what was most likely this tower that would have been called, uh, in the ancient East, that would have been called a, a ziggurat. So if you're not familiar with this idea, what a ziggurat was, it was, it was this incredibly wide structure that was built very tall. It was a tower, Right? And, and so they built it, it was rectangular most often in shape, and it would have this stairway leading to the top of the tower. And at the top, what you would find is this room that was prepared for a god, for a deity. It may have had a, a bed of some kind or some furniture of some kind in there, a chair or something. And, and the idea was that it was like we see in Genesis chapter 11, they're, they're building a tower to the heavens. The, the, the tower would have been known as, the, as this place that uh, the word Babel in the ancient world meant the gate of God or gods. And so it would have been seen as this meeting place of heaven and earth. It would have been seen as this place where humanity could uh, ascend and meet with the heavens, meet with the gods. This was a, a foreign idea to Israel's religion. This was foreign to the people of Israel, and it was more common in the land of Babylon. And and these towers would be built likely next to a temple where people would worship. And so this idea of building this tower most likely had to do with something to do with the worship of false gods. And so humanity comes together and they they build this tower to the heavens. And I think what we need to see here is that unity around a bad thing is not a good thing. And so unity around false worship, unity around idolatry, unity around rebellion against God's good plans and purposes is never a good thing. We've talked about idolatry before and described it this way, that when we take good things that God has made and we make them God things or things that control or shape life, then that's always a bad thing. And so I think what we see in Genesis chapter 11 is that unity around a bad thing is not a good thing. They're rebelling against God's plan for them. And what I mean by that is if you remember back in Genesis chapter 1 and and throughout what we've studied in Genesis so far, what was the command given to humanity? It was be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Humanity was created in the image and likeness of God, which means that we were made to represent who God is and to be his representatives of his rule and reign over his creation. And so if you remember back to when we talked about this idea of the image of God and what an image in the ancient Near East would have been, it would have been much like a statue that represented a king's rule in a distant land. And so when you saw that statue or that image of that king, you knew that that king ruled over this place, that he was responsible for it, that he owned it, that it belonged to him. 
and humanity was created to fill the earth as God's image bearers, demonstrating that God is the one who's responsible for creation. God is the one who rules and reigns over it, and it belongs to him. And that's a good thing. And what we see here in Genesis chapter 11 is humanity rebelling against this good plan of God for them. Instead of spreading throughout the earth, instead of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth with God's image, they settle in one place and they build their own kingdom rather than spreading God's kingdom. Instead of going about the task of spreading the glory of God throughout the earth, they begin to build something for their own glory. They begin to build this tower to the heavens. They settle in the land of Shinar or Babylon and build this city and tower so that they wouldn't be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. That was God's plan for them, and it was a good plan. In Genesis chapter 1, we read that God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And so this first command of God, which this is kind of contrary to how we typically think about the commands of God, was a blessing as well. It wasn't just this thing that God said, just do it because I've said so. He said to do it because it's actually good for us. And this should shape how we view God's commandments, shouldn't it? That when God tells us something is good, we ought to trust his word instead of our own and do that thing because he knows better than we do. That was the problem in Genesis chapter 3, right? The serpent comes to Adam and Eve And he tells them they can be like God if they'll reach out and take of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And as humanity reaches out and takes of the fruit, they declare that they know better than God what is good for them and what is evil. And we've been doing this since the beginning. We've been viewing God's commandments as though they are are just harsh, mean-spirited things that God just wants us to do just for the sake of it. When in reality, his commandments were made to point us towards life in him and true satisfaction and joy. See, when God gives commands, they're always good. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And humanity, instead of believing God at his word and trusting that he knows what's best for them, settles in one place. And we've seen humanity do this before. If you remember back to what Cain did, Cain, the curse that was put on Cain after he killed his brother was that he was to wander the earth, right? And, and Cain rebelled against this, this idea that he was meant to wander the earth by stopping in one place and building a city and naming that city after his, his own descendants. So we see even in Genesis chapter 4, humanity building this city, and a city in the ancient Near East would have had walls of protection, and it would have been a place where many people would have congregated, and there would have been, it would have been a place of security. It would have been a place where humanity tried to build up security around them. And then we see Cain naming it after his own descendants, making a name for himself. Similar to how we see this idea in Genesis chapter 11. And so there's this, this idea that unity around a bad thing is not a good thing. We, we, we know this is true, right? We, we think about groups like the KKK, okay, in our own nation's history, and how they were united around racist ideology. And it led to death and destruction. Unity is not always a good thing unless the unity is around something that is actually good. Unity for the sake of unity is not good. Unity around God and his plans and purposes is always good, but unity around anything that is outside of God's plans and purposes will always lead to our destruction. And it'll be a thief of our joy. But we still do this. We still unite around things that are in rebellion against God's good plans. We, we unite around uh, still sometimes racist ideology, white nationalism. We unite around things that create racial tensions in our country. 
I'm not saying that, that maybe you specifically have done this, but many of us have in our own culture, and it's still a problem today. And we unite around things like abortion and the destruction of human life, thinking that once again that we know what is best for us, that because it's, it's our body and it's, and it's our life, that, that we know what's actually good for us. But the problem is, is that human history has not displayed that to be true. We, we, we continue to think that we know what's best, and it continually leads to despair because we continue to go our own way, and it doesn't bring the satisfaction and joy we think it will. Unity around a bad thing is never a good thing. And humanity here in Genesis chapter 11 is united around this idea of rebelling against God's plan for them because they think their plan is better. And then we see that there's this attempt that we have to find security and significance apart from God and his will. It says in Genesis chapter 11, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And so we noted how cities had these walls and high populations that would have provided security and protection against enemies. And they build this tower. And in building this tower, they, they think that they can either build their own way up to God, up to the heavens where God dwells. Or, even worse, they think that by building their way up to the heavens, they can be gods, that they can be their own gods, that they're autonomous and sufficient without him. See, we, we build towers in life because we want autonomy, but autonomy and separation from God never leads to the kind of joy we're seeking. Sure, it might for a brief moment might bring you a, a bit of happiness for a few moments, but then you're left wanting more, which we'll talk about here in just a few minutes. But, but humanity builds this tower. They build this city seeking their own security. They believe that they can achieve what they would need from heaven, what they would need from God through their own actions. They believe they can gain security and safety through their own actions. It reminds me of, I'll never forget the story that my grandmother told me about one of her first mission trips. You see, she, she was going with her, her church. She was a, a newer believer, I believe, and they were going to an area in Africa or the Middle East where it wasn't real receptive to Christian missions, um, to say the least. It had been known to be a bit dangerous for Christians to be there, and she was terrified. She wanted to go, but she was afraid, and she was thinking about not going, and she went and she talked to her pastor, and, and what her pastor told her that day was, Charlotte, you are never more safe than when you are in the plans of God, and you are never more in danger when you're at, than when you're outside of them. And so see, security, if, if we really want security, if we want something that we can bank on, if we want something that we can build life on that's rock solid, then we have to look to the cornerstone. The cornerstone we just sang about. That's how the Bible talks about Jesus, as though he's, he's the cornerstone, he's the foundation of the temple of God's people that God is building. He's rock solid. The cornerstone would have been this gigantic stone that could be, the rest of the structure could be built around it. It was immovable. See, we've got to stop looking to created things for the security that only God can provide. That's what humanity is doing here in Genesis chapter 11. They're looking for security in every other place than where they can actually find it. And they're also looking for significance. They say, and let us make a name for ourselves. See, they wanted to make a name for themselves rather than spreading the fame of God's name throughout the earth. They wanted to settle in one place and make a name for themselves rather than spreading throughout creation and spreading the glory of God's name. 
They wanted to make a name for themselves. Uh, images were supposed to proclaim the name and the fame of the king they represented. And yet what you and I do is, is we often do this as well, right? We seek to make a name for ourselves. The things that God has blessed us in life with, we, we honestly believe that we're the reason for them. Whether it be your career or your home or your family or any of the good things that God has blessed you with in life, we're tempted to think that it's only because of the things that we've done that we've gotten to the place that we are. See, particularly in, a, in an American context, we think that hard work always, result, always brings good results. Friends, if you've ever been in a place in life where you've been in actual need, maybe you've, maybe you've been the family that's searching through the couch cushions for pennies. Maybe you've been in a spot where you didn't know if you were still going to have your home a month or two from now. Maybe you've been in a spot where you've already lost everything. See, if, if, if you've ever been in a place like that, and you've worked so hard to get yourself out. You know that it isn't just about what you can do. You know that you have to be dependent upon a God who owns all of creation and can provide for you when you can't. Because sometimes, and this is hard for us Americans to understand, sometimes we work hard and good things don't happen. See, we're, we're told that if you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and trudge forward, then you can make a good life for yourself. And, 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 I, and we should work hard, right? We should work hard because God commands us to be diligent and, and hardworking and, and to work to provide for our families. But we've, we've got to recognize as the when we enjoy the blessings of a good creation, it's because there's a good creator who's given them to us. It's not because we've earned it. It's not because we have achieved it. See, without God's blessing on your life, you wouldn't be able to achieve what you achieve. We can't find the kind of security and significance that we're looking for in life apart from the one who made us. But we desperately attempt to continue to, to regain what, what we lost in the Garden of Eden. See, because in Eden, we had this relationship with God. We had this God who cared for us. We had the security of dwelling in a garden of paradise with the God who made it. We had security. We were made in his image to reflect his glory. If you've ever taken time to, to study the idea of glory, it, it's almost hard to convey because it, it, it conveys this idea of, of incredible light and brightness and goodness. And it also conveys this idea of weightiness and substance. And, and it's, it's almost a hard concept to get at because glory emanates from the being of God. It's a good word to describe the creator. It's a good word to describe who God is. And it's almost hard to grasp because sometimes what we don't realize is that God is so great that you, you can't possibly grasp everything about his goodness and his greatness. And yet, even though we had this security and this significance being made in the image of this glorious God, being made to be in relationship with him where he provided everything that we could have possibly needed. We said, it's not enough. We said, I don't think that's true. We said, I think my way is better. And we sought to, to be like God even though God had already made us in his likeness. Because we weren't content with being the creation. We saw the fruit and we desired it, and we took of it. And there was this separation made between us and him because we looked for security and significance in a place where we could not find it. And so the, the, the question I want to ask you is, 
What towers are you trusting in for security? And, and, and what are you looking to in life right now for significance? Is it, is it your own morality and good works? Are you kind of metaphorically building your way up to heaven through good deeds and thinking that that's going to get you there? Are you thinking that's what you can bank on is just being a good enough person because you're better than your neighbor down the street? Can you imagine if that was actually how God judged us? Like you just went through your neighborhood and, and God said, well, you're better than Johnny down the road, so I guess, you know, you're in, Johnny's out. Can you imagine how, how cruel and unjust that would be? See, the picture the Bible gives us in Genesis, which is why we've taken so much time to look at it, is that humanity rebels against God and does not deserve his good gifts, does not deserve him. Moses wrote God's perception of us that, that our, our hearts had only evil thoughts continually, which means that even some of the good things that we pursued, we pursued them for selfish reasons. We pursued them for our own kingdom to make a name for ourselves rather than to display the glorious goodness of God's name. You see, we've, we've always rebelled against him. And, and the picture the Bible gives us is, is not that God goes, you know what, you're better than Johnny down the street, and so you get heaven, and he doesn't. The picture the scriptures give us is that not one of us deserves it. Not one of us deserves his mercy. Not one of us deserves his grace. And he chooses to give it anyway. For those who, who will trust in him. That we can find the kind of security that we long for elsewhere and the kind of significance that we need in our creator who is also our redeemer. So are you looking to your morality and good works, to your money and your accomplishments, to your marriage and your family, thinking that because you've got things figured out right now that, that you know, somehow because your family's better than the family down the street or, or your ability con to control your environment. This is a big one for those of us who, who wrestle with anxiety or with anger. I think that if, if we can just control the things around us, if we can control our environment, if we can get people to fall in line and do what we need them to do, then we can feel secure and we can feel significant. What we realize is even when they do what we want them to do and even when the things work out around us and our circumstances, we still find that there's this discontentment in us. There's still this piece of us that has gone awry that needs to be put back in place by a surgeon that's outside of us. Someone who can go in and do heart work and give us a new heart. Are you trusting in your physical appearance and your health that often fails us? You see, this is a, a, a big struggle for those of us who are, are young, as we think when we're young that, you know what, things are going good for me right now. And then whenever things later in life go bad with our health, it hits us like a truck because we've been trusting in our own abilities, in our own stature, in our own ability to do the things that we want to do. And then when we can't anymore, we're in this place of despair. Because we've looked to ourselves for security and significance. Whereas when we place our hope in God, then when everything gets broken around you, when everything gets broken in your body, when everything is going wrong, your security and your significance are right where they need to be. This is why you see some believers suffer amazingly well at the end of life in ways that you can't even imagine. I just think about some of the believers that I've seen go home to be with the Lord so far and, and some of the testimonies that they shared at the end of their life as they were on their deathbeds as they were dying of cancer, as they were 
perishing of other illnesses, as their bodies just got old and weak and frail and then stopped working. What you'll notice about those who have their security and significance in Jesus Christ is that even when their bodies fail them, they have a kind of joy that many of us don't have. Because there's life in him. There's joy in him. There's security in him. There's significance in him. But it can't be found anywhere else. It can't be found in you. It can't be found in what you're building in life. And if you're putting all your cards in what you've built or what you're able to do, then at some point it will fail you. Your towers that you're building will rot just like the Tower of Babel did. And you'll be left wondering, where do I go? And I hope that you'll remember this then and that you'll turn to this God who you can actually find these things in. You see, here's the great hope of Christianity. With, with Jesus, we don't need to build a tower to heaven because heaven has come down for us. That's the gospel. That's what makes Christianity unique and different, is that we don't have to build our way to the heavens. We don't have to build our way by good works or what we can do. It's that God himself has come down to save us and redeem us. See, even, even as God judges the, the, the humanity here in Genesis chapter 11, I want you to see this about God, that he's intimately involved with and present with his creation. Verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And, and Moses kind of, he, he kind of lays out this sarcastic jab for us because, you know, humanity has been building this great tower to the heavens. They said, you know, we're going we're gonna to build it to the heavens where God is. We're going to be like God. And God has to come down to even see the tip of it because he's so transcendent, because he's the creator. And nothing you can build in creation can reach him. I remember David Platt telling this, this story once about uh, being overseas on a mission trip and, and how he, he was talking with this man uh, about different religions and, and they began to talk about how a lot of these religions, it was just, it was different ways to, to get up the mountain through good deeds or good works or, or religious ritual or whatever it might be as you were building your way up to God. And, and the man didn't understand how Christianity was different. And so what David Platt said was that the God who's at the top of the mountain, you don't have to build your way up to him because he came down to you. You see, God, throughout the Bible, is intimately involved with creation. He steps into it. In the beginning, we, we saw that he walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. And then here, as humanity's rebelling against him, Though he has to come down to even see it because he's so transcendent and good and powerful, he comes down to see what they've done and then he's going to do something. He's going to do something about it. See, he, he comes down to be involved in the mess and to bring about hope for the future. And, and the thing about God is... is he, he's not like your, he's not like your absent-minded uh, father or friend that always forgets your birthday or the significant things happening in your life. He sees it all. He knows it all. And, and he enters into life with us. That's what Christianity is about, is that God came in his son, Jesus Christ, to dwell among us, to live among us, to tabernacle with us, to, which means to be present with us. And he came so that he might redeem us. He, he, he knows and he sees you struggling with your addiction. He sees you struggling with your identity. He sees you struggling with your anxiety, your depression, your sexuality, your marriage, and your parenting. He, he sees the struggles that are going on with your grandkids and your great-grandkids. And he sees the ways in which life has gone broken and awry and in which sin has impacted us. 
And he doesn't just let the world turn. We may think that sometimes because we're finite and he's infinite and we don't understand the ways in which he's working sometimes. But the reality is, is that scripture attests to you throughout the Bible that God is involved. He's not just spinning a top and watching it go and then seeing if it'll fall. He comes down. He's in the midst of the mess with us so that he can redeem us from it. We see also that, that God understands that there's this in, insatiable growth of sin. And so in verse 6, here's what we read. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. See, God knows that humanity just left alone. We just continue on our own path. We continue to rebel against him. We continue to sin against him in more egregious ways than we have before. See, what you'll notice about the sin in your heart and life, what I hope you'll notice, is that each time you engage in it, it leaves you wanting more. Each time you look at that stuff online when no one's around, brings you a brief moment of fleeting pleasure, and then the next night you're right back there because you were depressed all day long. And you're looking for a little bit more joy. And you, you again open the bottle, even though you know it's affecting your job and, and, and you don't know what to do. You go to it again because you're, you're just angry about how life's going. And, and, and you just think that a little bit more might just help. And, and we just we continue to go back to our vices, to our sins, to the ways in which we rebel against God, because sin has an insatiable nature to it, which means it won't be satisfied. Your desires that are outside of God's will for your life, no matter how much you pursue them, they'll never be satisfied. They'll always want more. And God knows that this is only the beginning of what humanity will do. And so he, he steps in and he's going to do something about it. He, see, God acts to judge sin as a part of his gracious plan to save. In verses 7 through 9, look at what it says here. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So he knows that because they can talk with one another, they can continue to make plans to rebel against his good designs for them. And so he's going to confuse their speech. And that let us phrase, if, if you want to go back and understand a little bit more about what that's about, you can go back to earlier in our series when we talked about let us in Genesis chapter 1. Because what God is doing here is he's announcing what he's about to do and accomplish in his creation to created beings that he's already made. He's announcing to his heavenly or divine counsel what he's about to do. And he steps into creation, and he is about to confuse their speech so that they can't continue to rebel against him in this way. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. You see, to, to the Babylonians, they would have understood Babel to mean the gate of the gods. And it sounds similar to the Hebrew word for confused. And so what God does here is in this place where humanity thinks they can build their way up to the heavens and reach the gate of the gods, in that place, he confuses their plans and thwarts them. He confuses their rebellion against him and disperses them over the face of the earth, fulfilling his plans for them that he originally had, right? He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And so God now, he confuses their language and it causes them to disperse throughout the earth. See, God judges to accomplish his plans and purposes, which are always good. He spreads them out so that they won't be united in rebellion against him, that they won't unite around a bad thing. And he does this so that one day he can unite them around a good thing, which is his own plan. You see, 
there's incredible hope when God confronts us in our sin, when God exposes us. You see, being confronted about the sin in your marriage gives you an opportunity to be reconciled and, and, and to testify to the goodness of God to his grace in the gospel. Because as we read in Ephesians 5, marriage, this mystery of marriage is about Christ and his church. It's about how God relates to his people. That's what marriage is all about. And so when our marriages are reconciled and when we're living out God's plan for us in marriage, we testify to the goodness of God in the gospel. See, when, when you're being confronted about your sin at work, it might just save your job. See, when you're being confronted about your struggles with lust, whether they're small or great, it might just bring you freedom and joy that's actually lasting. Because you would have to find it elsewhere. Being confronted about your sin might just save you for eternity. I heard uh, J.D. Greer as he preached this passage, he told a story about uh, this Christian leader who, when the whole Ashley Madison scandal came out, his email address was in the database. And so he was exposed. You know, he, he had never actually used the service. He hadn't even filled out his profile, but he, in a moment of weakness, and in this dark moment of his life, he had signed up for it. And his email was in the database. And so naturally, his board fired him. This came out, and his board had to dismiss him, even though he'd never engaged in it. And, and what he realized, after, after, this, after this struggle with bitterness that he had, where he'd, he'd lost everything, even though he'd never acted on anything, what God showed him was that by exposing him, he was actually pursuing him. Because that moment, that evening, where he began to sign up for this service, there was something inside him that had gone awry. There was something inside him that was in rebellion against God's good plans for his life. And it was something he'd still not dealt with. And so as God judged this leader and exposed him and he lost his ministry, what he realized was that as God brought about judgment in his life, he did it so that he might save him from himself and from his sin that he might redeem him and draw him into deeper relationship with himself. And, and this is what God does in us. If, if we experience God's mercy and grace, he exposes us in our sin. He shows us the dark recesses of our hearts that have been broken and in rebellion against him so that he might draw us to himself. See, judgment in scripture isn't always just about judgment. Sometimes it's leading to mercy. Because God, he gets glory when he brings about amazing salvation through acts of judgment. This is what the cross was about. That on the cross, God judged his son in our place so that he might reconcile us to himself, even though we didn't deserve it. This is what Christianity is about. This is what we need. We need a redeemer, and we need a redeemer who, who unites us around his plan. See, if, if you turn the page in your Bible, and we don't have time to go there, but if, if you go to Genesis chapter 12, what you'll see is that God, as, as the story moves forward, he, he chooses to bless this man named Abraham, this man named Abram. And he's going to make of him a great nation. And what he says to him is that as he makes this covenant relationship with Abram, he says, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so God, is, God has dispersed humanity. And, and all these nations, all these cultures are spread throughout the earth. And, and it was an act of judgment. But God's plan was always to bring them back together around his purposes. We see that in Genesis 12 with Abraham. And then as we get later on in the scripture, we continue to see uh, God's plan of hope and redemption going to not just his own people, but to the Gentiles. And when we get to Acts chapter 1, we read this. 
as Jesus is giving his, his last commands to his closest followers, he says, it says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And so their, their thoughts are about themselves, about Israel, and about what God is doing for their people. And what Jesus says is, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And listen to what he says. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, but also in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, God's plan has always been to unite the peoples of the world around his plan. To unite them in Jesus Christ. Paul says that this gospel was preached to those who were far off, to those who didn't know God, so that they might be made a part of God's people. We say the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and, and how God pours out his spirit and language is no longer a barrier. They speak with other tongues and, and they can hear and understand the mighty works of God that are being declared to them. God at the birth of his church is bringing the nations together through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Christians, this is what we're to be about. Is this message of hope and redemption, of pointing people to where they can find true satisfaction, significance, and security in their creator and their redeemer, Jesus the Christ. So I hope our lives will be about this. And I hope you'll consider maybe turning to him for the first time today. And if you've already turned to Jesus and trusted in him, then how this should shape your life, your home, your ministry, your work. And let God bring change in us as he begins to reconcile the world to himself in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words to us. We thank you for the ways in which you expose the dark places of our heart. We thank you that you don't leave us, but that you're present with us. We thank you that in you we can have hope and joy, satisfaction, security, and significance. Lord, would you teach us to trust in you? Would you help us to turn to you even now and to experience your grace and your mercy through the judgment of your son on the cross. God, we're grateful, and we give you the praise and the glory, and we ask that you would send us among the nations to testify to it. In Jesus' name.